Hello, everyone. My name is Caitlin Patrick, and I'm the Associate Director of Economic Surveys and Programs with the National Association for Business Economics. We are pleased to present today's event, Opportunities for Rural America, presented by the NEAB Policy Roundtable. Before we start the program, I wanted to quickly point out a few upcoming NEAB events and offerings. E-Conversations with NEAB is the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics in your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Every Monday following the jobs report, NEAB President and Vice President Julia Coronado and Ellen Zentner sit down to discuss the latest economic data and events. Simply search our name or e-conversations with NEAB to find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and be sure to click the following bell icons to stay up to date with our latest releases. Do you or someone you know want to sharpen your economics toolkit? Join us for a NEAB education course. For more details and to register, visit naeb.com CBE. We hope you'll join us for the 65th NAEB Annual Meeting, October 8th through 10th in Dallas, Texas. We have many great sessions prepared, including talks from Lori Logan, Philip Jefferson, Hunter Hunt, John Stinky, and many more. The early bird deadline is September 8th. For more information on the conference and the full program, please visit naeb.com slash AM 2023. Each year, NAEB's Tech Economics Conference brings together hundreds of applied economists, data scientists, academics, and graduate students for an intellectual exchange on how developments in economics and data science are impacting approaches, frameworks, tools, and techniques employed by practitioners at tech companies and other businesses. The conference also includes the NEAB Industry Job Fair designed to deliver the resumes of top economics candidates to employers from leading tech firms and other firms hiring candidates with highly technical backgrounds and training in economics. Tech 2023 will take place November 8th through 10th in Santa Clara, California. For more information on the conference and the full program, please visit naeb.com slash tech2023. Now on to today's event, note that we have Q&A open throughout today's webinar, allowing you to submit a question at any time using the Q&A box. It is my pleasure to introduce today's moderator, Sonia Waddell, Vice President and Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond and NAEB Policy Roundtable Co-Chair. Sonia, I'll hand it over to you. Great, thank you so much, Caitlin, and thank you all for being here, and thanks to NAEB for hosting this webinar on this really important topic. Um, so I'm going to set up the topic, I'm going to introduce the panelists, um, and then get right into the meat of the conversation. So here at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, we've spent much of the last five years trying to better understand the challenges and opportunities facing the more rural parts of our region, which spans the southeast from South Carolina up to Maryland. Of course, it's true that if you know one rural community, you know one rural community. Um, but it's also true that from the Great Recession to the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw not just a movement of population and employment away from agricultural communities, which we've seen for centuries, um, but even from a lot of our smaller towns and micropolitan areas. So smaller town and more rural areas sort of in the aggregate continue to have lower employment to population ratios, slower business or entrepreneurial growth, um, and higher poverty rates than more urban areas. On the other hand, there are also so many opportunities and assets in our rural areas that many of our communities are capitalizing on to improve not just their growth or the not just growth in their region, but the well-being of their land, their infrastructure, and their people. Um, so to highlight those opportunities and to better understand how we can foster geographically inclusive and potentially more efficient growth, we've brought together this expert panel that comes not just from a variety of organizations and perspectives, but also from different parts of the country, which is important uh, to this question. And so without further ado, let me introduce our panelists. Um, and in the interest of time, I've cut short many of their accomplishments. So I encourage the panelists to add anything uh, important that I, that I left out. Um, so Farah Ahmad serves as the Deputy Undersecretary for Rural Development at the USDA. She works to advance policies and programs that create economic inclusion and opportunity in rural communities. She first joined the USDA in 2015 in the Rural Business Cooperative Service, where she led community and economic development programs in rural places and regions. Farah has a Master of Public Affairs from the Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs and a Bachelor of Science from Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Jim King serves as the president of FAHI, a nationally recognized membership of more than 50 community-based organizations serving Appalachia. 
Among other board leadership, Jim has served as the board chair to Opportunity Finance Network and has been a contributor to numerous books and publications. He's a recipient of a fellowship from the Ford Foundation, the Nation Neighbor Works Association Lifetime Achievement Award, and the National Housing Conference Visionary Award. Fahey is what Jim will call a boots-on-the-ground organization that has, through a collaborative model, brought scale and performance to nonprofits serving rural and remote communities. He is an alumnus of the Harvard Business School's Owner-President Management, or OPM, program and holds an MBA degree from Eastern University and a BA from Bluffton University. Nathan Oley is president and CEO of the International Economic Development Council, of IEDC, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership organization serving economic developers with more than 5,000 members globally. It's an organization that is on the ground in urban and rural areas, looking at data and analysis through the practitioner lens. In 2017, he was selected as one of the 40 under 40 rising stars in economic development internationally. And before joining IEDC, Nathan was the CEO of the Rural Community Assistant Partnership. Nathan holds two degrees from Michigan State University. And last, but certainly not least, um, Dave Scheidler serves as the Chief Research Officer at Heartland Forward, where he oversees applied research activities in the areas of entrepreneurship and innovation, human capital and workforce development, health and wellness, and regional competitiveness. He describes his organization as a think and do tank. Um, to this end, he plans, resources, guides, and directs research outputs such as reports, practical tools, and actionable policies that Heartland communities can use to enhance economic performance and prosperity. Before Heartland Forward, Dave was professor of agricultural economics at Oklahoma State University and community and economic development specialist with the OSU Extension Service. Dave holds a PhD in applied economics from The Ohio State University. Okay, so I'm gonna pose the first questions. I think the um, panelists should feel free to come on video now. And I'm gonna pose the first question to all of our panelists and maybe start with Farah, um, then Jim, Nathan, and then Dave. So here's the question. What are the biggest challenges that you see facing rural areas today? And what are the opportunities? Well, thank you so much, Sonia. And it's such a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be joined by my colleagues here today. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation, um, many of us have worked together really closely over the years on this call, and this is such a wealth of leadership and expertise when it comes to rural and economic development. Um, so just to get us started, um, you know, I think when we when we look at rural communities and some of the biggest challenges facing them today, I think about it in a couple of different ways. And I'll start with the, sort of the policy perspective, um, especially someone coming um, from federal government. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges is just how um, sometimes policymakers view rural communities. I think oftentimes um, they get left out of the conversation, they get left behind, or policies are set in, in urban or suburban centric ways or perspectives. Um, and that's something that we're trying to do differently. And I think that um, you know the Biden administration is really flipping that on its head and focusing uh, on rural policy as a cornerstone of its equity agenda. Um, and that's why I'm really excited to be in the position that I am today and leading some of our rural policy work at USDA. Um, so that's a little bit from the outside. I think that's a big challenge for rural communities because it's going to take a lot to, to work on those policies, to reshape some of them. Um, and when we think about federal programs and federal investments, those policies really matter and making sure that the federal resources that are out there actually can be accessed by rural communities um, who, who need those funds and deserve those funds. Um, so that's a big challenge from the outside. I think when it comes to um, rural communities themselves, uh, certainly historic disinvestment in rural communities um, when it comes to infrastructure, um, things like water, wastewater, high-speed internet. Um, when we look at places that still haven't gotten that kind of connectivity, um, it is the, the furthest corners of many of our states. And then also access to critical services uh, like healthcare. I think one thing that we're really focused on, which has been a primary challenge, um, that we've seen in many of the rural communities that we serve is the capacity. Um, and I'm bringing the federal perspective of, of someone who has resources uh, for rural communities specifically at USDA, but it's really hard to access those resources. Applications are complicated. Um, you have to have the right kind of capital. You have to have uh, be able to pass an audit to access some of our 
our loans. And that's a real challenge for communities and also just uh, the ability to, to develop and maintain and sustain that kind of uh, expertise. Um, so those capacity challenges are, are real. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say is um, oftentimes when we're working with local partners in rural communities, um, they have a lot of work to do and they wear so many different hats. I was just talking to the president of an economic development district in a rural county the other day. He's also the fire chief at the same time. That's a really hard uh, job to navigate both of those, any one of those, let alone at the same time. And when I asked him who was supporting him with grant writing, he said his primary grant writer was also the police chief in the town. And so capacity um, has been a real challenge, but I really do think that it's um, on the onus of others, including folks in the federal government to make sure that our programs are the most accessible possible so that we can best support places that, that may um, struggle with some of those capacity issues. Thanks, Barb. That's great. Really interesting. Jim, can I turn it over to you? Yeah, and thank you. Um, and, and I appreciate being um, asked to be part of this really wonderful panel of folks. Um, the um, I do think um, we we need to think about rural places, particularly the deeply disadvantaged communities, differently. Um, I think too often the starting point for um, funders and sometimes with policymakers is that somehow these are just small smaller cities, if you will, right? They're just um, so we um, and we take a we take a short view of what we want success to look like. I I think every economics professor I ever had always wanted to tell the joke about like you know well what is it tell me tell me about the short run because in the long run we're all dead. It's this you know like. Um, anybody who took like 101 or 201 or what you like, we all heard it, right? Uh, but I, I do think we want to take a long view. Um, and it, this is about the long run. Uh, rural places, uh, many, many, particularly the deeply disadvantaged or the persistently poor places are lagging behind the rest of the country. Uh, but this didn't just happen and it isn't going to just turn around. When I think of the biggest challenges facing um, uh, those places, um, um, we aren't, when we don't take the long view, I don't think we're as comprehensive in the solutions, nor are we sizing them the right way. Um, I think, um, I think, as you said, when you open this, um, Sonia, that, um, you know, if, if you, if you know one real place, you only know one real place, right? Um, or Lance, I think Lance George from the Housing Assistance Council talks about it should be plural, right? Um, uh, as opposed to just rural, it, it sounds like it, it's very singular and homogenous. It's it's not. I think um, uh, I think particularly places like Appalachia, the Deep South, and the Delta are 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 misunderstood, um, and so we keep structuring solutions that expect a quick turnaround. We don't really recognize the the issues. I think we're up against, for instance. Um, Federal programs are often set up with eligibility around um, um, median income. And so you have to be poor compared to your neighbor. But what does that look like in a county where everyone, you know, where the median income is below the national poverty line? And that is actually true in a, quite a number of counties in rural America. Um, and so the, the system is actually just stacked up not to work. I think on the opportunity side, um, this is, you know, pers persistent poverty America, which uh, rural America holds about eighty-five to ninety percent of all um, uh, of all population that that are defined as persistently poor by census tract or by county. So, twenty million people uh, doesn't feel like something we want to write off. I think when, as a country, we've made a big bet on on people and on citizens. Uh, that we've gotten a really good return. If we if we thought more about giving people in places the tools that they need in order to succeed, I think that folks respond. And that has been our experience. You call this boots on the ground. I represent about 60 nonprofits that are community-based across Appalachia. Um, so we, you know, we lend money to, to folks regardless of income. Um, and we get a really good, you know, we tend to get a good return um, and have outperformed other members of the federal home loan bank system in, in economic downturn. So I, I do think people, people deserve to be bet on um, if they're handed the right tools. And I think that's a big opportunity. Also, and I'll just end with this, we saw during the pandemic, 
when people had flexibility to move to other parts of the country, rural America also, all of a sudden became a hot ticket. And so it, it really it only takes one disruption to turn things in another direction. Great, thank you. Nathan? Yeah, I'll try not to repeat too much of what you all have already heard. I think for me, a couple of the challenges that exist in, in rural places here in the United States right now are centered around narrative and metrics. I think there's obviously a perception uh, across the United States of, of what rural America is and looks like and feels like uh, when we all know those, the folks that have worked in, in rural places know that there's a really great diversity that exists in rural places across the United States from the, the Black Belt area all the way up to Native Alaskan tribes. Um, and so the narrative on what what people exist and what opportunities exist, I think is, is one that's been really hard to, to kind of fight against over time. I think that, that we need to spend more time talking about what is happening in rural America, putting a face and a voice to those conversations, whether that's in policy circles or otherwise. I think we also have a long history uh, of, of economic development approaches that have been extractive in nature, that have come in and either tilled the land or they've mined for minerals or they've, you know, they, they found ways to enri enrich based on resources, but those resources don't stay in the community. And so, you know, centering economic development approaches on, in the long run on asset-based approaches and in ways that are gonna embed wealth locally is really, really critical. And then on the metric side in particular, oftentimes rural places are competing against larger places. And the metrics associated with those competitions tend to not have a context associated with them. And I, I'll use the most basic function of this. You know, in, in economic development, Jobs and investment are the two big indicators of success in economic development. But the creation of five jobs in community 500 is fundamentally different than the creation of five jobs in community 500,000. But yet there's not necessarily a lot of context put into those competitions and the metrics associated with how you compete with other, other entities. I do think there's really significant opportunities that exist in rural places. I think the pandemic in particular highlighted uh, some of the issues that, that rural people have been talking about and rural places have been focused on for a long time. Broadband is, is the easiest one to, to highlight where you had to have broadband access to be on for school or for your job or to do a medical appointment where there wasn't broadband access. All of a sudden there was a, a, a larger national conversation around the need to have broadband access. But I think the actual, the pandemic highlighted some of the challenges that, that rural America has faced, but also now provides opportunities for us to really make a, a substantial investment in those places and make sure that those basic uh, needs are, are met, whether it's broadband or water, water wastewater access uh, or transportation issues or healthcare or childcare. All of those issues are things that we've talked about for a long time in rural places that are now larger parts of the conversation, not just in rural, but in, in larger places as well. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, from an economic development perspective, the places that have focused on small business growth and entrepreneurship have a real opportunity to, to have a leg up on others. 46% of net new jobs come through small business growth. And in rural places, that often has to be the, the focus of their economic development efforts, to focus on, on those communities and those companies that are existing in your community. How do you help support them and help them grow as, as they can and want to? Uh, and how do you make sure that as you're investing in those resources and those tools, that that wealth that's created in the community stays in the community and continues to revolve throughout that community. So I think there's a lot of opportunities ahead and I'm excited to, to help be a part of that conversation. Thanks, Nathan. Dave, can I ask you to chime in? Absolutely. And, and my comments are gonna be uh, repetitive. So maybe this is a, a conclusion uh, to this particular question um, and, and restating some of the things that have already been said, but um, I would, would agree with Farrar that uh, leadership and capacity is a huge issue uh, that's facing rural communities. And yet, um, almost ironically, um, it's also uh, a huge opportunity uh, that faces rural communities, uh, both from a sense that there are um, existing assets that focus on uh, particularly agricultural leadership that could easily take those principles and, and broaden their target uh, to be more inclusive of, of the broader industry <laughs> that's happening in rural places. Uh, but also, um, we, we released a report, I guess two years ago now, um, during the pandemic, that actually looked at um, uh, m millennials that were moving back to their home places. And one of the things that 
they found so attractive about these smaller metropolitan and even micropolitan and rural communities was their ability to be able to plug in and, and fill leadership roles. They couldn't do that in the Bay. They couldn't do that in um, <clears throat> uh, New York. And so, um, yeah, so if, if rural communities will embrace these newcomers, um, there's a tremendous opportunity to bring new perspectives and, and leadership uh, to their communities. Um, of course, uh, infrastructure and infrastructure mod modernization uh, has been mentioned. Um, I would totally agree with Nathan's comments that um, the, the pandemic has really elevated issues that rural communities have addressed for a long time. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've begun changing that narrative a bit to where it's, it's all places struggle with transportation issues. All places have struggled with access to internet capability, um, as well as uh, healthcare access and some of these other, other things that are now kind of at the forefront of our mind because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But um, I also think that there's been some tremendous innovation that has happened in rural places um, that has allowed um, our, our rural residents uh, the opportunity to take the lead and, and even prototype some solutions uh, that we saw apply during the pandemic uh, in terms of internet accessibility. So, um, so yeah, so with that, I'll stop and, and we can move on. Thanks, Dave. And yeah, I, you know, I would encourage any any of the panelists to, to feel free to jump in. Um, you know, this next question that I have, I think, connects a lot to what Dave was saying. I'm trying to like trying to take notes since we'll host a webinar is actually kind of challenging. Um, so, you know, the, the question connects to, I think, what, what Nathan and Dave particularly were talking about, you know, which is this question of place-based policy. So much of the economics profession, I did hear, by the way, that in the long run, we are all dead, I think, in, in at least two classes. Um, but, you know, much of the economics profession has spent time focused on people rather than place-based policy intervention. So what argument, Jim, would you make for focusing time and attention on rural places in addition to people, and then I wonder if there might be some like tag along to the kinds of things that have worked. Like Nathan was talking about fostering entrepreneurial activities or small business creation. You know, Dave was talking about agricultural leadership or sort of maybe some of the things that would sort of attract attract people to those regions. But Jim, let me let me start with you for the argument you'd make for focusing that that time and attention on places. Sure. I, I, I assume everybody's had the experience where you've, you've read a question ahead of time, and then when you hear somebody actually say it out loud, you're like, that doesn't sound like the same question I was prepared to answer. Um, so, you know, get used to disappointment, I guess. I, I think um, I think when you focus on people, and and and, that, and, and generally I would say that's that's the right way to go, right? Like, And, and, and even when we think about place-based, you just don't want to take your eye off of, this is about people, right? And um, and yet, um, when particularly, um, and I, if I didn't make this very clear, I mean, I'm, we're our work is focused in Appalachia, which is one of the six perennially persistently poor regions in the country. And so, um, I'm often dealing in places where uh, there's widespread poverty, and it, it joins one county to another and another. And so, just with that context, um, I think that that when we think about uh, since that's my experience, when I think about getting a, a place-based focus rather than um, than than exclusively people, um, when you when you're looking at people only, policy tends to have a transactional uh, behavior to it. Um, how are we going to do a thing in a place? How am I going to serve this family with a voucher, for instance? Right. So let's say let's say that's your 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 sort of person-based strategy. Um, one, it doesn't do anything necessarily, at least it doesn't appear in this environment, uh, to spur new building activity. Uh, vouchers tend to look in the rearview mirror in terms of what is a fair market rent. And so it is a reactive um, type, of, type of intervention and doesn't think about like the rest of the infrastructure it takes to actually deal with a place. Um, I think... Um, I think USDA and HUD and some of the other sort of housing centric programs that I'm most familiar with um, have you have you thinking about how do I place a, a set of units or a unit in in a community as though it has no no uh, effect on anything else or that it makes the assumption that 
uh, the rest of the economy actually behaves in a rational manner. And I think the, the more poverty that you're that you're that you're actually up against, the less that becomes true. Capital is like water and uh, it flows the path of least resistance. Well, when it doesn't want to flow, uh, what you need then is to think about a place or even a region. We think often in regional terms. And so um, I'm working in an environment where the loan to deposit ratio for banks is under 35% often, which means they're not lending money to people. And so we think about what are platforms and structures necessary so that capital will flow places it wouldn't logically on its own. Um, and, and so not just what does it take to make a transaction work? But but what does the velocity of, of cash look like in a community? And how do we change that directionally as well as by velocity itself? Um, and and I think um, when, when you begin to think about places and regions, then you can start to overcome those kinds of structural barriers that I, uh, otherwise um, I think you're left with sort of hobbling along transaction by transaction. I'd like to just to build on what Jim was talking about there. And I think when you when you talk about pupil versus place, first of all, it can't be either or. It's got to be yes and. It's got to be both. But when you're able to look at place, you can take a little bit more of a holistic approach to the needs of that community of that region and think about how each piece is interconnected. So oftentimes you might be having a conversation around broadband or around water, wastewater access or economic development or housing. But when in fact, all of those things are interconnected in a place. And without one, you can't have the other operating in the way that it needs to. And so place-based approaches do allow for more holistic approach. I will tell you that we're not doing enough of that uh, from a holistic standpoint, especially with the programs that, that we have available. But I do think it, it is a, an interesting way to think about a community, a place, and to Jim's point, a region. Regional approaches are really critical, especially in small places in particular, where you're not going to have access to every single thing that you might in a larger community. And so how do you collaborate with your neighbors? How do you collaborate with neighboring communities to think about building regional approaches that benefit everyone? And that's that's a little bit of a challenge, uh, maybe a large challenge in many places, but where it can happen and where you can think holistically, not just about your community, but about your region, you know, you, you really see some really unique opportunities come about. Yeah, I'd just like to add as well that um, building on, on what Jim and, and Nathan have shared, and it, I think implicit in their conversation is the federal policies that, that are being rolled out to facilitate these place-based strategies provide tremendous flexibility for the region itself to define that strategy. Um, it's not the old, we're gonna subsidize people to go to college, or you know, it's not prescriptive in that nature, um, which really, uh, is huge in giving rural communities the opportunity to, to build on the assets and talents that they have present in their community. So I would just add on to that, um, that with that unique opportunity, Dave, also comes some challenges too, right? So the federal government um, has been moving towards doing more place-based work. Um, and you know, I'll give an example. We have a, a place-based program right now called the Rural Partners Network, which is focused on doing exactly that, having an all-of-government approach, um, and actually having federal staff in rural communities um, living and working and serving in those rural communities, and actually being there in person, building those partnerships on the ground. And in that program, we don't even self we we don't even define a geography. We let the communities kind of self-determine what is their own geography. What makes sense when they call themselves a community? Um, is it multiple counties? Is it a region? Is it multiple towns? Um, and then what is their own asset-based strategy that makes sense for them? Is it leveraging their natural asset, which could be the forest, right? And, and move it. We have one community we're working with, for example, who has historically used their natural asset of the forest for timber it's in Wisconsin, um, which has been great for over a hundred years, but they realize they, they need to diversify their economy, right? To create a new set of jobs. And so they're looking at leveraging their forest, which is uh, a large share is, is maple trees and actually moving into maple syrup processing and creating community ki uh, kitchens and actually creating spaces for entrepreneurs to thrive and to market those products. So it's really exciting work and I'm, you know, uh, excited to see the federal government has moved more towards that space over the last couple decades. The flip side is it's it's more 
uh, time intensive work, right? It's the harder thing to do than just say, here's a federal program, apply for it. If you meet the bar, then you get the funds, right? And so we, we I think philosophically believe like it's the right approach to have work be place-based. And, and I, I love that it has to be yes and, right? It's people and place. So we didn't say place, we actually think of it's community-centered and community-driven and community-led. Um, so it's sort of people and place together from that aspect, but it does mean that it's more time intensive, staff intensive, um, but ultimately uh, has better long-term uh, impacts when you're thinking about all those types of uh, investments from education to infrastructure and capacity kind of holistically. Thank you. So, you know, thinking about then the 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 yes and the place based um, and and thinking about sort of holistically, right? So I'm going to start with Nathan on this one. You know, are th are there gains to be made? Do you think by better connecting urban and and rural areas? Now, of course, like. Like I said, we've spent some time looking at rural areas and we can define it in a million different ways, right? And we've done that. Um, but but are there gains to be made by better connecting those areas? And to what extent is that already happening? Yeah, well, the short answer is yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we've we've a lot of times had this rural versus urban dichotomy that, that happens, whether that's through policy, whether it's through conversations. And instead of that, we have to talk about collaboration. How do urban rural places connect with one another? Jim talked about that regional approach earlier, like that's really critical. It can't just be rural to rural or urban to urban. It's got to be rural to urban, rural, suburban, urban. All of those things have to be interconnected and they have to recognize. And, you know, we're starting to see this, but certainly a lot of work left to do that. The benefit of one place can also benefit another, that it doesn't always have to be a competition. And I come from the economic development world. Competition has always been the, the big piece of the work. But where we're starting to see collaboration happen, we're seeing really big benefits, both for urban and rural places. Now, that's challenging as well, because as urban places continue to grow and, and the urban sprawl that you start to see, that becomes really challenging for small places in the, the outer areas of those, those metro areas. And so how do you connect those uh, people? How do you connect those places? How do you build those conversations? Oftentimes happens with really small things that build up to larger opportunities to collaborate. Uh, it's really challenging. It's, it's certainly not easy, but uh, there are some some really great examples of where this is happening. And the more that it happens, the more interconnected we become, and the the better benefits we see for places of all sizes. Thank you. Anybody else want to jump in on that one? We also got a question that I'll tag on to that kind of urban rural, um, which is sort of. In the law, if, you, if you're if you're projecting out, like I, I hate these forecast questions, but if you're projecting out, you know, we got this question about, um, you know, will there be anybody left in rural areas ten years from now? What do we expect in terms of migration patterns between urban and rural over the course of the next next ten years? Anybody have thoughts? So I'll kind of answer a, a, a little bit broadly before you know getting to the migration part of that question, just about the urban and rural uh, connection, which was your original one, Sonia. Um, you know, in my mind, there is an inextricable link, right, between rural and urban communities, but it's it's not one of dependency where rural communities are dependent on urban and quite to the contrary, right? Um, the U.S., when we, we look at our, you know, the macroeconomy and then also the urban and rural, um, pieces of it, we're connected by food and fuel, right? A disproportionate amount of the nation's food, the nation's energy, it comes from rural communities. Um, and, you know, that really needs to be recognized um, in terms of the contributions that it does make and that it sustains, um, uh, you know, the the jobs and the markets uh, all across the nation. And we saw that in the pandemic, right? Um, when there's, a, there's market disruptions and suddenly supply chains uh, are not working across this country in a matter of mere hours. Um, and I think, you know, because of that and because of the importance rural communities play in both the national economy and the global economic context, we're really focused on supporting new and better market opportunities in rural communities. Um, and a couple of examples of that, um, just from the, the perspective of the U.S. Department of Agriculture is, um, you know, since the pandemic, we've been investing in things like 
um, fertilize their expansion, right? And domestic production there. We've, we're, um, we've been investing in things like meat processing, for example, to make sure that producers have op options to be able to process. And, and investing in those type of domestic production and expansion does a lot of really good things. It lowers costs that can help tackle inflation. And all of those are really important to our national economy. And so, um, you know, when we think about uh, the importance of the urban rural connection, I think um, the large role they play, especially across those supply chains, um, is one that is critical um, to the, the health of, of, our, of our overall nation. Um, uh, I think on, I'll, I'll forget what the second question was, Sonia, but so I may have to ask, but um, but I do think I, I, when we think about regional areas like Knoxville, Tennessee is one of the larger cities, Birmingham as well the, in our footprint, we, we don't separate rural from urban, like the, these two things work together. So when you think about making economies work, when you think about cash flows, um, all of those all of those pieces for us when we when we're thinking long-term strategy it's those two things together um and, and that's a pretty light answer but I, I think it is in fact just the way we view it um the the other the other part about um the long run or the long view of you know what um you know will will these places exist i think uh, that kind of throws all of rural into one big basket as that it's all going downhill. And I think that's that's actually not what we see. For, for sure, there are communities that um, that have been in decline severely for a long time. And 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 that that isn't a place that that from a regional standpoint, we don't put a lot of attention there. It's like, can we be of assistance? But we're not trying to turn that around. But you do have communities like um, Elkins, West Virginia, and some of those those sort of panhandle parts of West Virginia, where we saw a lot of influx of population during the pandemic, of folks who really wanted to get out of uh, out of cities, find a lower cost of living, and and really the flexibility to live and work anywhere. Um, I think it makes makes some of these communities in rural America uh, um, very very attractive. So I, think, I would just go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Well, Sorry. I was just going to say, I'd just add to what Jim was saying is um, part of where that that growth and, and migration into to Elkins, West Virginia was coming from was amenity driven. And, and people are realizing that there's great things. I mean, I can mountain bike, I can do whatever outdoor activity I want to from rural places. And it takes me 20 minutes to get there as opposed to three hours. And I have to spend all weekend to go hunting or whatever. Um, that has made rural America really attractive since the pandemic. And I think that's going to continue, um, especially we, one of the trends that we had seen historically was that, you know, people would go off, they would kind of make their reputation and, and start their careers. But when they started hitting the mid thirties ish um, and, and possibly having children, many of them would move back home because they wanted that small town environment um, the, the intimate, you know, I know my teacher because she's my neighbor, you know, kind of feel for their children, um, much like they had when they grew up. And, and I think, uh, the pandemic has only highlighted the fact that not only do you get that neighborliness and the, the intimate connection and, and social benefits, but you have all of these natural amenities that you get access to as well. And that has become really attractive, um, Else okay, great. Um, so we got another question um, from the group, which is about the electrification of vehicles. So I don't know if anyone has thoughts on this. Does the electrification of vehicles, do the goals around that pose a challenge for rural America? I, I can tell you that we're installing um, charging stations at our office, uh, which are going in right now, as well as with um, any of our members who are um, who are building multifamily units. This is, this is one of the things we're not requiring it, but we're pushing for it in part um, because uh, um, 
communities of, of disadvantage, deep disadvantage, I think in particular, uh, are always the last to get to adopt to whatever new technology. And so that just puts them immediately behind the curve. So we're just trying to be on pace if we can. Um, and, and it is a challenge. Um, I had a board member come from Southwest Virginia to Berea back in the summer, early summer, uh, with his uh, brand new Ford truck, one of those very expensive electric vehicles. Uh, but it took him an extra two hours and he had to go out of his way to find a hotel that would, would have a place to charge. And that was in Berea, Kentucky, which is, you know, 30 minutes outside of Lexington and on a major interstate. Um, but the density of population alone makes putting in um, charging stations and other amenities, um, you know, just takes a much longer time to actually get any kind of payback for that. It's, um, so it's, it's just a different environment, I think. Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, the exciting thing about it is that there are a lot of um, opportunities to expand electric vehicle infrastructure right now um, through both, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the In Inflation Reduction Act. Um, at USDA, we have resources to do that too, specific to rural communities. Um, whether a municipality is trying to set up its own electric vehicle charging station or a private business wants to do that. Um, so we're supporting that. We're seeing interest um, from rural communities in doing that, especially when it comes to thinking about how to lower costs for those communities. So one example I'll give is um, uh, there, you know, there was a rural community who uh, wanted to pursue electric vehicles for their school buses, right? They were driving uh, to pick up kids going hundreds of miles on a regular basis. Um, and that was a very expensive cost to the school. Now, of course, investing in electric vehicles, is, it, it can also be a big upfront investment, but because there are lots of, um, you know, grant and loan opportunities out there right now, um, this community took a, a leap to pursue that, ultimately um, would see gains in the long run in doing that um, and, and would be, you know, cost saving for the school and the school district and the county overall. Um, so we are seeing interest, but but it's not without its challenges. And I think um, you know, to Jim's point, getting that infrastructure in place um, across the nation is one of those. Thoughts? Oh, great. Um, thank you. Thank you, Barr. Thank you, Jim. Um, another question that we got from the from the audience is, what opportunities do you see? And I, I think we've covered some of this, but what opportunities do you see that can drive economic growth? while also addressing social determinants of health in rural communities. Um, have you seen examples maybe of, of particular programs or, 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 or areas that we can really think about um, economic growth and social determinants of health? A lot of moving parts, um, but um, since uh, since nobody else jumped in, um, I'll give it a, a roll. Um, I think I think one we think of poverty alleviation as as, uh, as sort of like the foundation of uh, um, starting to solve for the social determinants of health. Right, poverty is actually the one of the the big indicators. Um, on, a, on an alleviation standpoint, we've been trying to replicate a program that we uh, that we helped foster in Ledger County, Kentucky, which is called Pharmacy, uh, um, spelled like farm. Um, it's a partnership between the nonprofit, the, um, the farmer's market, and the community health care center. And they're actually, the, the physician there is actually writing a prescription for people who will go and buy healthy foods uh, they have, and it's walking distance. So, right, we're encouraging people to take, take a little stroll rather than prescribing uh, medication for things like, um, you know, um, various forms of heart disease. Um, and then they have to come back and, uh, you know, on a weekly checkup to get that, that voucher. And I think that's, that's building a bit of a uh, burgeoning um, uh, farmer market um, that that uh, folks are folks are beginning to 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 create businesses that support like that that little bit of industry right it's created a demand for for healthy foods um, I think um, and maybe I'll, I'll just leave that that there um, I we we also um, in um, 
with a collection of 10 organizations right now. We've partnered with, um, with a, a for-profit group that works with community colleges and uh, employers to actually, um, how do we match up young people who, um, if they had the right job opportunities, would stay in the region if we can if we can actually match the education up with what employers are looking for. And so rather than traditional um, industrial economic development recruitment, like, right, here's here we have, you know, this, this stripped mine site we've turned into an industrial park, uh, actually looking at various forms of other employment um, and, and trying to answer this, I think, a lot differently. Um, I don't have any good anecdote about how that's going wrong. I think we're still in the developmental stage of that. But I think that's a place that we think we feel hopeful about. The only other thing I would add to that is I think there's a growing connection between, so, between these metrics and economic development metrics um, and a correlation on quality of life issues, right? I think that's pretty, pretty much the determining factor in economic development is how do you create quality of life opportunities and social deter determinants of health play a huge part of that. And certainly so does the income side of job creation. Um, and so I think there's an interconnectedness that already exists. I think it's a, it's a growing opportunity for the economic development field and for, for organizations focused on the social determinants of health to come closer together around these issues. I think uh, I'll just add, you know, we're, we're certainly trying to take steps to think more about the social determinants of health and how we prioritize um, the areas that we're focusing our funding, uh, or at least, um, you know, in working with our partners. So, you know, I think for a long time, uh, you know, many of our programs were only driven towards things like persistent poverty, which is really important and is really telling of, of, of a certain type of story, but there are other pieces that are important. And so we've started to use other types of metrics um, uh, in our programs, for example, we're using the CDC's Socially Vulnerable Index, um, which tells us a, a lot of dynamic things about a place based on their vulnerability, whether it's, um, you know, the type of housing they live in or, you know, the, the primary language spoken at home or other types of things that are really important um, in how we're focusing um, our programs and focusing the resources that we have. So we're getting a little bit uh, more sophisticated and dynamic and thinking about how we can incorporate um, things like social determinants of health into our, our federal programs and policies. And that's one example. Thank you. Any other any other thoughts about particular programs or um, or opportunities that you have seen? Um, and if not, I am gonna I'm gonna move to sort of any any final remarks you might have. So I'll ask that question. I know Jim, I'm asking a lot of string questions here. Um, so let me start with any other thoughts about particular programs that you think you know we should all hear about that have been working in in rural areas. So we have a new program uh, that we just launched this year uh, called the Economic Recovery Corps. It has two main goals. One is to build capacity in distressed places, and this is urban, rural, tribal places across the United States, but where we're going to embed a fellow for up to two and a half years directly into communities to help them build out their economic development efforts and certainly hopefully the implementation side of that. And the reason that we're doing it for two and a half years is that it's a long-term approach that we're building true capacity in these host organizations in communities. And so that the individuals themselves can grow with the community uh, and certainly, you know, grow on their own career path to, to build out the capacity of the, of the host organizations and the community they're serving. The second goal is to really create a pipeline of the next generation of economic development leaders, because we know, like almost any industry today, there's a huge part of the population that's going to be retiring over the next decade. And so creating this pipeline of the next generation leader, leaders is really important. I say this because we just closed the application period for host organizations that would be interested in hosting these fellows as well as for individuals that would want to serve as fellows. And we didn't really know what to expect uh, in the program. We have 65 slots, uh, both for host organizations and obviously for fellows to serve in those places. And when we closed those application periods, we had more than 500 communities that had applied to host a fellow, and we had more than 1,350 individuals that had applied to serve as fellows. And of those host organizations, 50% of those we're serving rural places in some way, shape or form, either directly in those communities or as a part of their plan to serve their region. 
And so it shows not only is there a significant need for this, but also that this approach of, of building long-term capacity and embedding people directly in those communities. And in our case, we are paying those individuals. We're not asking the communities to do that. You know, provides opportunity for communities to think a little bit differently about their economic development efforts, how they build capacity, as Farah talked about really early in the conversation, and how do we accelerate economic development opportunities to allow these communities to grow in whatever way they want to grow. And that's really important. It, it can't be our approach or someone else's approach. It has to be a localized approach to driving capacity and building economic opportunity. Thanks, Nathan. That's that's great. I mean, that's one of the things that we hear all the time is, you know, I know we've talked about it um, so far in the last hour, but this need for capacity in rural and in urban areas, but particularly in rural, more rural areas where by definition there are fewer people. Um, and then leadership, you know, the need for leadership, but especially as we see such a uh, such a large generation retiring, you know, how are we going to how are we going to fill those shoes in, in urban and rural areas? So so that's great. Um, Thank you. So in the last, we have about 10 minutes left, um, and I know Nave wants a minute or so at the end. So I would love to hear, you know, any final remarks from any of our panelists, and hopefully with a charge to us. So if there's one thing that we as citizens can do to improve the situation for our rural communities or the interaction between rural and urban communities, what would that be? So I'll let anybody, anybody start. Maybe I'll start with Dave. Yeah, start with Dave. No, that's okay. Um, I I would say find somebody that has a rural connection um, and and get to know that individual. I mean, so so um, the reality is most of us only have to go back one or two generations before we have a connection to a grandparent that was a subsistence farmer or uh, lived in a community that served a farming community. Um, you know, and so. Um, remembering that these are people um, and not just an us versus them kind of mentality, uh, I think is huge. And so developing that kind of kind of empathy is is step one um, that that each of us is, as individuals can take on. I think for from a, a policymaker or decision maker perspective, um, you know, again, this is kind of a, a summary comment, if you will. Um, but embrace regionalism uh, and place-based development. Your communities have assets. They have um, opportunities associated with those assets that have yet to be tapped. And so take the time to think strategically and freshly about the region's assets and how to leverage these once in a lifetime public investment opportunities that we're seeing through the Chips and Science Act and through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, et cetera. Um, to really lean into creating the next generation of innovations. Um, there's no reason with technology being the way it is today, um, with small-scale manufacturing being feasible through 3D printing and, and CNC machines and things of that nature, and um, access to, to broadband you know, coming, um, if you don't already have it, um, that these rural communities can't, can't be hotbeds of innovation just like the urban counterparts. I would say uh, to build small, but dream big. You know, I think all big changes happen as a result of many small changes. And so thinking about how you connect with people, with other places, to, to Dave's point, the collaboration that needs to happen among and between communities is really critical, but you have to start somewhere. You've got to start to build up those opportunities in small ways, but always keep that, keep in mind, like where do you want to go as a community or as a region or as an organization? because you wanna have that kind of North Star that guides the process, but build the trust. And trust is really, really critical in small places in particular. And so start small, uh, but dream big. Um, I would say, you know, don't think of, you know, rural communities as places that need help. You know, think about them as uh, places uh, and people that can be partners, partners in building prosperity. Um, in their community, in their region, um, and across this nation, um, and that no no one person or organization has all of the answers. Um, in fact, that's why so many of us have been working together on this call for so long, because none of us hold all the answers, and we're trying to figure out ways we can um, stack our resources and our teams and our capacity and our technical assistance programs together to do more and to do better together. 
Um, and so we do need more partners um, working alongside us. And there's there's always room for more energy um, um, and more innovation. Um, I'll just do a quick plug, um, just based on the last question about what programs I want you to know about um, before I turn it over to Jim, uh, which is I mentioned earlier that um, uh, a little over a year and a half ago, we launched something called the World Partners Network, which is um, led by the White House Domestic Policy Council. And it's a place-based program. We're operating in 36 rural communities across 10 states in Puerto Rico. Um, where similar to the Economic Recovery Corps, we actually have federal staff in place um, supporting community-driven, community-led, and community-inspired economic development work. Um, you can read more about it on rural.gov. Rarely do we um, make things simple in government, so I was really happy that we could just have a short website, rural.gov. Um, and the idea there is not just that we help those 36 communities, but the lessons that we learned there, um, the success stories we have in doing innovative and creative things, whether it's high-speed internet or housing um, or business and economic development, um, that we share those resources and stories um, about those rural communities on world.gov as well. Sometimes it's seeing success in a place that's similar to yours or a neighbor, a county or two over really matters. Um, and kind of inspiring others to take take the leap and try something similar. So uh, with that, I will hand it over to Jim. I was trying real hard not to be last. Uh, I didn't want to be after any one of you, um, but I wasn't quick enough, I don't think. I, I, just to link it back to, and to sort of follow uh, Farah's point about the Rural Partnership Network, I would just broaden it a little more like a program that works is actually uh, rural development, USDA rural development acting almost as a um, as a bank, and um, um, and the reason that matters is I have I have a footprint that has no national bank presence or super regional bank presence, and so uh, when when we talk about capital flows. Uh, for that reason, USDA's uh, Rural Development Office becomes incredibly important across a variety of different things, right? Um, plus, plus we, you get to work with, with folks who have this as their focus, uh, rural places. And so that also, I think that all also helps. Um, I, 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 think, I think to kind of just even, I know I'm supposed to be the place-based guy, but to go up a level from this, I think, uh, particularly when I think about um, places like Appalachia, uh, we, we, we really need to take a, 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 a bigger approach to how we think about federal programs and philanthropy and private capital and how do we bring those together. Um, when I've talked to the, the White House Domestic Council about like, well, how do we get philanthropy to come to, to, to the work we're trying to do? And I think like just by approach, and I've heard the same thing from philanthropy, well, how do we get, you know, somebody else to come to our table. I think what we need is a new table where um, philanthropy, um, federal federal programs and policymakers, uh, private capital and practitioners actually are sitting around talking about what does it take to make things work differently than what they do now, rather than taking something like um, a project or a program that worked in Baltimore and say, let's see if we can make this work in Harlan. Well, it was never intended to work in Harlan, Kentucky. So that's, Sizing it down won't make it better, right? Like it, 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 we need to think about it in a fresh way. I would also add to it, I think there is, um, and, and there's quite a lot of data actually to support that there's a lack of philanthropy as well as private capital flows into rural America, period. Like it's way behind, way behind the curve of the national average. Um, um, and just as a quick note on that, like according to the National Council of Responsible Philanthropy, um, persistently poor counties receive one-tenth of the amount of private philanthropy that anyone else in the country gets on average. One-tenth. So um, if we want to know why, why it's difficult to work there, if we're not putting any investment in, um, why would we expect a return? Um, so that's my, that's my one preaching piece, and I'll pass the hat. Um, I, I think we also need uh, academia. Uh, there's a real lack of good quality uh, scholarly work about about these places, what works, and um, and how we how we learn from what we've done. Thanks, Jim. So I love that as a as a final uh, a final thought, which is building a new table, 
right? How do we think about capital flows? How do we think about bringing together government, financial sector, other private sector, academia, philanthropy, the same table to think about, you know, not just rural areas, but how, but how we think about sort of economic and community development broadly and how do we define success? You know, what does five job mean? Five jobs mean in Southwest Virginia versus the suburbs of DC, for example, in my area? Um, is area median income the right metric? You know, how do we think about leadership and, and capacity? So I want to just thank you all so much for being here. Um, thank you, you know, to the panelists um, and, and thank you to, to, the, to the people listening. Um, you know, this question of this geographically inclusive growth and how we as a nation build on our assets, which is our people and our places, right, um, is so important to, to how we think about the next few decades or centuries um, of, of economic and, and community growth. Um, so thanks again, and let me turn it back over to uh, to Caitlin, who I think is going to say a few things uh, on behalf of Nate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Nate. We hope you'll join us for the 65th Nate Annual Meeting, October 8th through 10th in Dallas, Texas. We have many great sessions prepared, including talks from Lori Logan, Philip Jefferson, Hunter Hunt, John Stanky, and many more. The early bird deadline is September 8th. For more information on the conference and the full program, please visit nape.com slash AM 2023.